This week, I'm talking to Lindsey Graham, the creator of Terms, a new political thriller about a dangerous demagogue elected to the U.S. presidency, and the steps an outgoing president takes to stymie his power. So, you know, a nice escape from the news. We're going to hear the first two episodes of Terms, and then I'll talk to Lindsey about art, politics, and Nazi punching. Stick around. From Wondering, this is Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. Before we go any further, I want to direct your attention to albasalix.com. That's producer Eli McElveen's show, and they're about to launch a fundraising campaign for season two of Alba Salix Royal Physician on Indiegogo. It's a delightful confection made from equal parts sitcom, fairy tale, and medical show. That URL is albasalix.com slash season two. I'll put a link in the show notes. So, terms. As you'll hear me say in my interview with Lindsay later in the show, this thing first ended up on my desk on November 9th, 2016. If you've managed to piece it together by listening to my interviews, you'll know that that was a pretty bad day for me. And along comes this piece about this vile, bilious, racist demagogue elected to the presidency. I didn't want to listen to it. I thought all my worst fears were confirmed, and I didn't want to wallow. So, I managed to get a little critical distance from the election. I calmed down, though I stayed angry. I started using five calls to talk to my elected representatives. And then, when enough time had passed, I listened to terms. And it was good. And it stayed good. And then I was hooked on it. And then they joined the Wondery Network. And of course I had to play it on the show. Terms is hardball politics. People fight dirty, make schemes, keep secrets. Lindsay graciously stitched episodes one and two into a single 25-minute episode, which is what I'll be playing for you today. If you like what you hear, check out their new website at termspodcast.com. All right, let me get out of the way here and let the piece speak for itself. Without further ado, episodes one and two of Terms. They tried to marginalize us, to tell us our America was a thing of the past. But tonight, I will become the next president of the United States. Tonight, we take this country back. Well, there you've heard it. Candidate Charles Dunwalk breaking with tradition and addressing his campaign supporters with polls still open in a large majority of the country. Wow. It's almost 7.30 p.m. here on the East Coast with a lot of voting yet to be done. But Charles Dunwalk is taking the unusual step of addressing his supporters as though he has this very close race already wrapped up. I want to bring in Rebecca Montgomery, host of Inside Track. Are you surprised at all by any of this? Davis, what hasn't been surprising about this Dunwalk run for the White House? I mean, six months ago, no one even believed Charles Dunwalk had any hope of securing the Republican nomination because, you know, he was so unconventional. But then when he won the nomination, no one thought he could make a close race of it. I mean, they, well, we, because I have to include myself on this, counted him out even before the Democrats had chosen their nominee. Yeah, well, we all are probably guilty of that to some extent. 
But it was an uphill battle for the Republicans this year, right. even though Oliver Pierce remains an incredibly popular president. It's extremely rare for a party to maintain control of the White House after holding it for two terms. Exactly. It's only happened once in the last century. And that was with the sitting vice president as the candidate. Sure. Well, that's definitely not the case here. No. Dunwalk beat Vice President Garza early mm -hmm. in the primaries and has been campaigning against the status quo, against the Republicans, even though he himself is a Republican. Dunwalk has definitely not been trying to ride on Pierce's coattails. No, in fact, this is the first time that that a sitting president has failed to endorse the nominee from his own party. President Pierce is staying completely silent on this election. Completely it's, it's silent. It's almost as if he wants no part of it. Well, regardless of how reluctantly he does it, the only thing Oliver Pierce really has left to do is to congratulate the winner. And then, well, I guess off into the sunset, so to speak. But the mm. big question still actually remains, who will he be congratulating? Well, Rebecca, we'll begin to have numbers for you very soon. But as we wait for states to close their polls, I want to bring in Democratic pollster Sidney Howard. Sidney, you've been tracking the exit polls for Ohio and Pennsylvania. Come in. Mr. President, Ron Clarkson is on line three. Thank you, Zach. Ron. You hear that? You get to ride into the sunset. How do you know what channel I was watching? Because you think Rebecca's cute, even though she's mean to you. What do you know that's useful? So far, turnout's been high in the only two states that matter. RNC's pretty sure the total may fall short, but Dunwalk has the electoral votes. <sighs> so it's over. You sound like your turtle just died. Look, you finished strong. You helped the party hold on to the White House. Take the compliment and start working on your short game. Oliver? Ron, I need you here tomorrow. I'll fill you in later. Right now I have to go to dinner at the Vice President's. But tomorrow you need to meet with me? Yes. So, that part about your work being done? It's just beginning. Damn mind? You can't be serious! Keep your voice down, Victor. They'll hear you. It's my damn house for the next eight weeks, and I will not keep my voice down! Do you realize what you're asking me to do? Of course I do. I know better than anyone. And you know I would never do anything to hurt you if there was another way. I'm asking... Hurt me? You want to annihilate me! This finishes me! Even if it goes nowhere, my, my career... finished, Victor! I'm sorry, but it's true. This was your shot. It didn't work out, but there's still important things that we Oh, because do. you say so? You call the shots? You always call the shots. I did everything you asked, every photo op, every campaign speech. Eight years I stood next to you to show everyone how big your tent was. I... I that's not... Oh, 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 really? You didn't use me to fight your demographic Victor, problem? Victor, I did... Because it sure feels like I've been playing your one brown friend for a long time. All you did was bore people in two languages. Victor, I brought you with me all the way, not because of your last name, but because I trust you. Because I know you're a good man, but you're not without blame, Victor. There is a reason things were covered up. I'm not here to scold you. I I'm not trying to punish you. I'm here to tell you that you can make a difference. You can help me do something about all of this. It's too late, Oliver. He won. Taking me down isn't going to change that. Oliver? What's going on in here? 
Sorry, Christina, it's my fault. I shouldn't have spoiled the evening talking show. Oh, I think we all know what you were talking about. But if you can say it to my husband, can then you can just... say it Honey, to me. that's not what no, we're even... No, if he's in here blaming my husband for what is happening tonight, then it's about me, Christina, too. Christina, no This is one not is... my husband's fault, Oliver. He was with you when you needed him. And now, after you all stood by and watched this happen, you want to say it's his fault? Christina... All of you kept your mouth shut during the primary until it was too late. You got exactly what you deserved with Dunwalk. You're right, Christina. We created this mess. It's all of our responsibility. We should go. I'm sorry. Tensions got high, but... Good night, Christina. Victor. I'm sorry. I know you've always given everything you can for this administration and for this country. I know you will continue to do that. You gonna tell me what that was about? I had some things to talk to Victor about he didn't like. And I am asking you what those things were and what made him start yelling. And I am telling you, I'm not telling you. What? I am telling you that we talked, that he got angry, and that we're going to work through it, but I am not going to talk about it. What? Just no? And I'm just supposed to walk away? That's suddenly who you think I am? I know that's not who you are. And I also know you're not a woman I'm going to lie to, so I'm telling you truthfully that I am not going to tell you. You don't just... I don't. But I am. That is unacceptable. I know, but I have a congratulatory statement to write. And this to answer. We are not done discussing... Fine. General? Yes, I am. Good evening, Mr. President. Evelyn. Fox News and the Pace website have already called it for Dunwalk. They're expecting a concession call within the hour, and then they will be asking for a statement from you. I asked Gary to have a few of the speechwriters stay late in case you want to let them... Here's what I want to say. Verbatim. Quiet, please. Whenever you're ready, sir. Tonight, the American people completed a ritual that is the cornerstone of our democracy. It is neither perfect nor an easy process. Yet it is perhaps the most important tool we have as a people to build the nation we want to inhabit. That is the point of our elections, and perhaps for everything we do as public servants, to build a more perfect union. Today you have selected the leaders that will steer our nation from the White House to the State House to the Courthouse, and to all those who tonight have been chosen by the people to lead them, to guide them. I wish you wisdom. Wisdom and resilience in the face of conflict. Wisdom and humility 
in the face of those you have been selected to serve. I congratulate Charles Dunwalk on the great honor that has been bestowed upon him by the people of our country. In the coming months, I will do whatever I am able to assist in a successful transition, while still keeping to the important duties of keeping our country safe. And when I leave this office, I will do so with the firm faith that I leave it in the capable hands of a servant of the people. God bless our union. God bless the United States of America. Yes, sir. We'll have it out within the hour. Thank you, Evelyn. Ron, tomorrow, one o'clock, Zach will pick you up in the back of Philomena's, where you will be having lunch. Come in the delivery entrance and don't bring your phone. Are you serious? I'm very serious. What are we meeting about? I cannot let that man become president. Tonight on Mandatory Measures with Davis Fry. President-elect Charles Dunwalk sits down for his first interview since election night. I'm Davis Fry. You're watching Mandatory Measures. President-elect Dunwalk, thank you for joining us tonight. Hey, it's my pleasure. First, you were the surprise candidate. Then you were the surprise nominee for the Republican Party. Now, for a large portion of Americans, you are the surprise president-elect. So I guess my first question is... Are you surprised you're here? No, not at all. We knew we'd win from day one. Let's talk about that win. Obviously, the electoral math broke your way, but the popular vote went to your Democratic opponent, Senator Cameron Carlyle. Nearly one million more Americans voted for the senator than for you. What concerns might you have taking the office without a mandate from the American people? Oh, look, the President of the United States, simply by virtue of being the President of the United States, has a mandate. It doesn't concern you. You want a mandate, Davis? Look at the down-ballot elections. Look at the number of men and women sweeping into Congress who support me. Here's your mandate. The American people not only want me in office, they want me to do what I promised I would do without obstruction. Mr. Dunwalk, a number of those promises remain incredibly controversial. Right, look, there I'm are... stop you right there. Every promise I made, every policy I laid out, every platform I campaigned on... It comes back to one thing. America first. America first. That's it. The fact we've reached a point in this nation where the idea of putting America first is controversial is ludicrous to me. Absolutely ludicrous. Zach, where the hell are you taking me? I don't understand the question, Mr. Clarkson. Where are we? You're at lunch, sir. You never left the restaurant. We never talked. You never came here. The president is waiting inside. Enjoy your day. I thought I'd been in every room in this building. Where the hell are we? This place is creepy. The few Secret Service agents that know about it call it the cage. Which it is. A Faraday cage. And an EMP generator. You left your phone at home, right? Because the sparks and smoke can be rather spectacular. 
I think Zack just threatened me. Oh, don't be silly. Zack likes you. What is going on, Oliver? So long as that machine is going, no one can record anything that is said in this room. Not the machine. Why am I here? Charles Dunmore cannot be the next president. And you and I are going to make sure of that. All right, you're wrong, and I'll tell you why. America first doesn't mean turning friends into enemies. America first just means demanding the respect that we deserve. That's it. And we've lost that respect because of the policies and actions of the current Republican administration and the Democratic administration that came before. You think that other nations, including our allies, have lost respect for America because of the Pierce administration? Look, I believe Oliver Pierce is a good man. I believe he's a smart man. What do they say about him? He's playing chess when everybody else is playing checkers. Davis, do you know what it takes to be great at chess? I'm asking, do you know? Uh, yeah, it takes I... a willingness to sacrifice your own pieces in order to eventually, eventually win the game. I'm not willing to sacrifice my own. I'm not willing to sacrifice American lives or American jobs or our American future. Yeah, Oliver Pierce is a good, smart man, like all the other Good, smart men who appeased their enemies and let them take their pawns, who allowed terrorists and the countries that support them to take thousands of American lives because the long-term strategy allowed for it. Now, that's not me. Not a game I have any interest in playing. Then how do you approach You ever study Syria? Huh? Probably not, right? Maybe you can locate it on a map. Maybe you can't. Doesn't matter. I have studied Syria and the Syrian people, and the people of countries just like it. So was President Pierce and Congress and Homeland Security. We know what countries the threats will come from before they even know it themselves. If we know this, if we know where the threat will be, it's our duty to eliminate that threat before it ever has a chance to arise. It's our duty to wipe it out. Am I wrong? What are you talking about? Where would you even start? Well, there's many a slip twixt the cup and the lip. Wonderful, Oliver. Now is the perfect time for your folksy bullshit. The founders thought of this. They put things in place to stop men like Dunwalk from taking power. Ben Franklin talked about... They it. meant outside threats, Oliver. What we're talking about is treason. No, I'm talking about exploiting certain procedures that have been laid out in... We don't all have your gift for semantics, all right? The American people will see it as treason. World leaders will see it as treason. You know why? Because it's fucking treason. Are you finished? Why would you do this? You're the man who finally brought compromise back to the federal government. You're the man who worked tirelessly... And I cannot allow Charles Dunwalk to destroy all of that. I can't hand the government over to a man whose only goal is to dismantle that government. Jesus Christ, what am I doing here? Everyone always said you were the cool one, Ron. Clarkson never breaks under pressure. That's why Pierce needs him. He'll keep you calm in a crisis. Yeah, you and I both know that's not true. Yes, we do. So, I need you to follow me on this. Stay calm and give me a chance to talk. Mr. Dunwalk, I'm going to read a statement you made, and if you would, I'd like you to clarify it for me and our viewers at home. Yeah, sure. At a campaign stop in Ohio, you said, The American judiciary is like the guy who points a gun at you and tells you to give him all your money. Then, after he takes your money, he shoots you anyway. <laughs> 
I actually forgot about that one. It's pretty good. What did you mean by it? Look, I grew up outside of Chicago. Chicago is an incredible city. Best sports town you'll ever see. Best food, jazz, art, all of it. Unfortunately, on the flip side, Chicago and corruption go hand in hand. Capone, Dillinger, all the old organized crime guys, sure. But then you have the Daly family that decided Democrats should get to rule like kings. The list goes on and on. Point is, I know what corruption looks like. Seen it my whole life. But nothing I've seen compares to the corruption of the American court system. There are judges pretending, (laughs) and not well, mind you, pretending to be objective. Judges who have taken it upon themselves to dictate social policy, to determine how we should raise our children, who have decided that their will, not the will of the American people, is all that matters. I bring up the judiciary because you'll be responsible for filling at least two vacancies on the United States Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Some think it could even be three seats if you were to win re-election. Tell me, what does a Dunwalk Supreme Court look like? A person who looks at states like Kansas, who hold their judges accountable for their rulings, who say that their state legislature has the right to remove judges who go too far afield, a person who looks at that and says, they got it right, that person is a Dunwalk Supreme Court justice. The only person worthy to sit on the highest court in the land is a person who understands that the court itself represents the greatest abuse of power in our government. If you were this committed, why didn't you just campaign against him? Endorse the Democrat? Because by the time it was clear what had to happen, it was too late. It would have solidified his outsider status and helped him win. And it would have made it difficult for me to do what I need to do now. Let it go. Just help get him out in four years. Four years. That man will destroy the country on day one. He believes compromise is weakness and winning is more important than doing what's right. Millions of lives mean nothing to him. You've been around long enough to know what this man is, Ron. What he really is. I'm not paranoid. I'm not crazy. I'm trying to save the country. So why not just kill him? This isn't a vendetta. We're not the mob. I know. So where do you start? Try to find something to get him impeached? Mm, That still puts him in office and it could take years. We have to stop him before he's even sworn in. Sorry, Oliver, that happens in 72 days. We go after the Electoral College. Schiller's old boo? Even if he resurrects it, it's never going to get through in time. We just need it out there. It starts the conversation and gets people questioning the college's legitimacy. People have been bitching about the Electoral College for 200 years. It's done nothing. Why would now be any different? Because... We are going to add fuel to the fire. That may be the case for you, but when many people, politicians, and the public hear some of your ideas on foreign policy, ideas that essentially cast longtime allies in adversarial roles... That's not the case. That's not the case at all. Places like Germany, Japan, they're not adversaries. To me, they're allies in the way that uh, my son is an ally. At the same time, when my son graduated from college, I made it clear he was on his own. It was time for him to be a man. Germany? Japan? They're the kids who turned 27 and are still living in the apartment above Mommy and Daddy's garage. It's time for them to stand on their own two feet. It's time for them to help defend themselves. Let me just read you a statement, from a joint statement made by six members of the German Bundestag. This speech was delivered in Berlin today. This happened just today. His proposals are dangerous to Germany. 
dangerous to the European Union, dangerous to his own people, and dangerous to the world. If Mr. Dunwalk were to take action on any of these policies in regard to Germany or the EU, it is our belief that the entire Union must strongly consider sanctions against the United States of America. Today, sir, you have European allies making unprecedented statements, suggesting sanctions against the United States based on your proposals and your rhetoric. Okay. Look, let me tell you about Germany. We know everything that they're doing. We always know everything that they're doing, which is good, because we all know what happens when Germany is left to its own devices. Now, this bravado... Let's see how brave they are when they no longer have the United States military to back them up. Let's hear the tough talk when they're no longer free to trade with the United States. Or when we decide to reclaim the digital frontiers our own. Let's see how hard-nosed Germany is, or France, or England for that matter, when we shut down their access to the Internet. That's not even... I'm sorry, sir, but this all sounds incredibly adversarial. Norvad? Oliver Norvad would destroy Victor. You willing to sacrifice your own vice president? I am. Well, what if he finds out? He's not. Victor gonna... knows everything, and he knows what needs to be done. He is, above all things, a patriot. I'm sure that'll be great comfort to him when he's in prison. Let me worry about Victor. Who else knows? No one. Gwen? No. She can't know ever. I believe everything I intend to do is right, but as you said, others may see it differently. There could be a noose at the end of this path, and I have to keep Gwen safe. She'll find out. She's smarter than both of us. My wife isn't the issue right now. There's no turning back once this starts, and I need to know if you're in. Honest and unwavering. First city council campaign I ran for you. Honest and unwavering. That's Oliver Pierce. I could have gone with arrogant and bullheaded, but honest and unwavering played better. I need an answer, Ron. Honest, unwavering, and a man I trust completely. What do you want me to do first, Mr. President? We are just about out of time. I want to thank President-elect Charles Dunwalk again for sitting down and talking with us. And now, as is always the case on mandatory measures, we give our guests the last word. Mr. Dunwalk, the floor is yours. Thanks for having me, Davis. Elections last a long time. Honestly, I feel like I campaigned for three years, and I bet it felt like a decade for you all. Brutal. What the American people are subjected to over the course of an election, just brutal. Gets hard to know what's true and what's just another talking point. My opponent, Senator Carlisle, you might remember, was real fond of saying, the enemy is at the gate. The enemy is at the gate. The enemy is at the gate. People love that stuff. It's got urgency. Ring of truth. The enemy is at the gate. Nonsense. The enemy is not at the gate, my friends. The enemy lives within the walls of this city. Look, the enemy might be your coworker, your neighbor, your child's teacher. The enemy might pray five times a day so you don't notice him funneling money to terrorists. The enemy might look like a beggar so you feel sorry for him, all the while he's collecting welfare for a disability he doesn't really have. The enemy might be the family that says they want nothing more than to live the American dream, when in fact, they got no right to be here. The enemy 
is the person you see at a party. Or maybe someone you knew in high school and just keep up with on Facebook. She's the one telling everybody to shut up and just let everyone do what they want. Marriage is for everybody. Abortion is right. Marijuana cures cancer. Let people do what they want. But this is the same woman who would scratch your eyes out for merely suggesting that you have the right to own a gun. The enemy is the couple next door who look down on you for loving your country too much, who mock you for going to church, who shout at you because you dare to raise your child in the way you see fit. The enemy is not at the gates. The enemy is all around you. It's hard to hear, I know. And it's hard to make the right decisions when facing all of this chaos. But it's okay. It's going to be okay. Because I'm willing to make those hard decisions. Terms. Featuring Brandon Potter, Kent Williams, Whitney Holitick, Jeffrey Schmidt, Aaron Roberts, Robert McCollum, Tony Ramirez, Lydia Mackey, Christy Vela, and Ellen Losey. Creator and executive producer, Lindsey Graham. Co-executive producers, Michael Federico and Robert McCollum. Music by Lindsey Graham. Written by Robert McCollum and Michael Federico. Directed by Robert McCollum. That was episodes one and two of Terms. Coming up, my conversation with Lindsey Graham, the show's creator and executive producer. I had the pleasure of talking to Lindsay late last year about his creative process, the origins of the show, and whether or not it's in keeping with the norms of civil discourse to punch Nazis in the goddamn face. Take a listen. Lindsey Graham, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. Well, thank you for having me, David. It is my pleasure. So I've read that the idea for terms you've said occurred to you just back in the in the Clinton administration initially. Can we talk about the seed of this idea for the show? Sure. Yeah. Um, it has. It's been a long time. So it was. It was certainly my freshman year of college, and that was ninety two. So it would have been in the election season of of Clinton's ascension, uh, and the very first election I was able to vote in. Um, and, uh, my roommates and I got to gabbing about politics, who knows, and, uh, and soon, uh, a plot of sorts, uh, was put together for this, this idea for a movie, um, and, uh, that movie actually starred Gene Hackman and Sting. We were casting, <laughs> casting it back then. So Sting would have been the, the, uh, Charles Dunwalk if he could put on a, a an American accent. I think I just watched Dune. So had had him as a villain in mind. But the idea stuck with me, you know, forever. And uh, uh, this year, or actually last year, I guess, uh, 19, uh, 2015, um, we were fishing around for ideas for our first narrative fictional podcast, audio drama. And um, we pitched a bunch of them. And uh, this idea is one that, uh, that the team kind of liked the most. I mean, in fact, Rob... Uh, decided to 
to abandon his pitch in favor of mine, which I thought was chivalrous. Now, when you say Rob, we're talking about Rob McCollum. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, he, he, uh, we all liked the idea. And um, like, again, this was late 2015, so we had no idea what was coming. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, I, I suppose a truth is stranger than fiction question is kind of inevitable here, right? Um, I mean, because you did you weren't you weren't trying to write Trump, right? Dunlop is his own his own beast. Isn't yeah, it? Uh, I, it became difficult not to write Trump. I mean, we we uh, we had a lot of decisions to make. You know, we really made this sort of an amalgam of of of. Trump was a figure, and Cruz was a figure, and Rubio was a figure. Kasich was too realistic to even you know, put into the, the equation, so we threw him out. You know, we just threw those guys in a pot and mixed it up, um, and came out with with Dunwalker, you know, and, and added our, a, a few pinches of this and that. Um, but then, you know, we would write things, and the the clearest uh, example of this is would be would be Dunwalk's Dunwalk's slogan. America first. Literally seven days later, Trump comes out with it, and 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 we're just agog because we we chose it for its unsavory historical you know, connotations, um, and um, we had to have a little meeting. Do we rewrite it? No, I don't. I I, I decide we won't. Um, if anything, it's a hook, and we can explain the story. Uh, but also, nothing else better encapsulates what Dunwalk wanted to say. Um, you know, everything we thought of was just a rephrasing of America first. What are Dunwalk's politics? Like, what does he want? I, you know, it's very hard to to actually answer that question without the lens of, of the current events, but I'll, I'll, I'll try. So, uh, Dunwalk is a, you know, air quotes, outsider. He's never liked politicians. He's always built things himself. He's always uh, found the way forward by himself, and he's never really understood that his uh, methods or his uh, success is on the backs of other people or even his privilege, um, and he figures the entire world works that way. Um, I think he lacks an enormous amount of empathy for society at large, uh, I don't think his his social circles are wide enough to include people of enough different opinions um, to understand simple facets of life that, like, there is poverty and it's hard. Um, so he wants what a, a utopian version of government that would totally work if the entire country was a, uh, was a suburb. And everyone had a nice company job or was leading a company. Um, he wants government out of his business and everyone's business. Um, but he is blinded by his own um, his own uh, ideologies into thinking that they are more precious or more right than others. And so, of course, would probably want government to uphold those values. Um, I think it's this, you know, the pretty much the straight, uh, far right view that um, the way things are, or the way things w were, is better than the way things are, even though that's probably a fiction. 
and um, it, and largely ignores certain very profound realities for large portions of the population. It seems it seems to me, and I can't tell if well, no, I am pretty sure that this isn't just partisan blindness, but it seems to me that Dunwalk, the character, has a clearer ideological bent than Trump does. Oh, yes. I, yes. I, I think that the, the people that, that Trump has surrounded himself with um, definitely are ideologues, mm-hmm. right? Like, Steve Bannon scares the crap out of me. But, like, in Dunwalk, Dunwalk to me seems to be both Trump and Pence and Bannon all rolled up into one. Right. And that's exactly who we were trying to write. I mean, at some point, uh, the question was asked, do we need to address the um, either disparities or resemblances to Trump? And, and my answer was no. I mean, Trump is his own person, and, and he's not... Um, he's not... Uh, despicable enough in the right ways to be really scary. Now, he has in his administration and his ascendancy his own version of scary, but it's not Dunwalk scary. Dunwalk is a, is a smarter operator, is, a, is a, a more clearly convicted person. I don't think any, any advisor would have any sway on Dunwalk. Yeah, I have to say, you know, when I, when I first heard the show, when Hernan and Jeffrey first presented it to me, it must have been, I think it was November 9th, right? And I, I have extremely liberal politics, and anyone that listens to the show or has listened to the show in the past couple of months has probably heard my, you know, outshot messages. I was just crying at my desk listening to episode two. <laughs> oh, at the end of the Dunwalk at speech? The end, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, Dunwalk the speech, because he's on um, the show with Davis Fry, and he just he just delivers this, like, deeply. and it was, And it was just the culmination of everything that I was afraid— would come to and indeed has sort of come to pass in the United States. Um, m- maybe not so explicitly. No, I mean, uh, and indeed not without not without immense public resistance, which has like kept me aloft in the sure. past like couple weeks. Um, but it was just like too much for me. It was too real, uh, and so I needed to take some time off. And I came back to it. Now I'm like super into the show. But I think that that, like, I found it so painful initially. My only response would be, I guess, then that we, in large measure, succeeded with that interview. Yeah, no, it worked. It, it was, it was, the early writing process was was uh, a lot of revisions. And that interview, we really wanted to get tone across rather than than policy. You know, and I don't think there's a better section of of that interview than when he um you just can hear Dunwalk's disgust with with people like your child's teacher you know how how could how could Dunwalk put so much venom on his tongue when he's talking about teachers and neighbors and and you know old classmates and you just feel that uh he has an enormous us against them mentality. So I'm glad we frightened you. Thank you. Yeah, no, let me ask you a question though. Who who do you feel is the villain in terms? I've noticed that Brandon plays Dunwalk as the heavy, right? Sure. Uh like he's just real nasty uh in his delivery. But I've noticed on Twitter that there are a lot of 
users that identify as deplorables uh-huh. right, who are right. big fans of Dunwalk and that he presses their buttons the same way that Trump does. And they consider Pierce to be the villain because, like, what he's doing is shady. Right. Uh, and, and I think... I think that if if I can take that as another emblem of success, then I totally will. Because the idea that that Dunwalk isn't a villain is, uh, I just can't contemplate that. He's clearly a villain. I mean, he's made out to be, Brandon acts him as such, he's, he's a villain. Now, what Pierce does and how Pierce is portrayed, uh, I think is, is, you know, the the very much more interesting question of whether he is uh, is villainous and i think he is uh in the same way that batman is villainous you know um to go off on a tangent you know so um this nazi punching thing i have uh, i like you sit on the 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 lefter side of of things but i have some friends who are absolutely certain that it is okay to punch nazis and I cannot figure out how a a good Bernie voting progressive could think that that's an okay thing to do, regardless of what what comes out of this person's mouth. What shouldn't go, should not go into it is a fist. And I think the same question is being brought up about about Pierce or, or similar. You know, regardless of how villainous Dunwalk is. At what point do your objectives, um, however valiant, become become villainy? I've also been seeing a lot of a lot of things play out around Nazi punching, and whether or not whether or not violence is an appropriate response. I think something that I I would like to punch a Nazi. I'll say that, but I think. Something that changed the way I was framing the question, whether or not is it acceptable to punch a Nazi, is that punching Richard Spencer is not an escalation. It is self-defense. The punches, his punches have already been thrown. They were thrown off frame, you know, and they weren't necessarily him punching that person or him literally punching anyone. But in his saying, I think there should be a white ethno state cleansed of Jews and people of color, that is that statement is itself an act of violence and should be responded to in self-defense. Is the reasoning that I have heard from others. Oh, yeah. And I'm sympathetic to it. Um, The problem is, in my mind, um, is that you have to prove the objective truth of that value. It is objectively true that's, that he, a, a punch happened. You know, it is objectively true that that is violence. It is objectively true that that is criminal violence. We can have, have codes that, you know, uh, we've all agreed to uh, that say that. Um, it is not objectively true that his opinion is uh, not worth having or invalid to to say out loud you you get into this place where um you are trading a objective action for a subjective action and this is why we have the first amendment anyways you know because the idea that there are ideas that are somehow objectively invalid cannot be measured 
in a, in a civil society. What it leads to is the, uh, is the opportunity for someone else to say exactly the opposite. And, uh, and you have no recourse because it's not an objective thing. You cannot prove the validity of your opinion um, in, a, in a real, tangible universe. And so, and so by, by punching someone, you have allowed them to literally punch back or punch first. And um, it just can't—I think that it's, it's a category error to say that his, his words were violence and therefore requires physical violence— uh, has has made a an equivalency that cannot be made. So how does how does Brandon go about preparing himself to be Dunwalk? Uh, Brandon is a fantastically um, present actor. So the, just the way terms is done, you know, we we got picked up a lot later than and than we had hoped by Wondery. Uh, by anyone, but uh, thankfully by Wondery. And so we found ourselves on a, on a production schedule that literally had us writing, uh, recording, and editing week to week. So no, no actor was truly prepared until they came in the booth. And oftentimes the, the scripts that we handed them the night before have, have changed fundamentally, and so we hand them new ones. Um, this requires uh, an, a level of skill from the actor that uh, that I'm glad we had the actors uh, available to uh, to do that. Um, Brandon will kind of pace a little bit. He almost looks like he's waiting in his corner um, uh, of the of the boxing ring, and and uh, he's got this uh, serpentine swagger of his of, of his torso that he and um, is a very physical actor. So. His preparation is is uh, is just going through takes, and he'll he'll joyously ask to do another and another, and um, so yeah, he's he's into it. He loves it. I'm I'm curious. Um, why is Dallas Fort Worth such a hub for voiceover? Um, I don't know the entire history of it, uh, but I do know that uh, a very large Japanese animation company um, was by accident founded here and oh, funimation funimation yeah and yeah. and so they suddenly uh had need for a lot of voice actors and that kind of grew more more voice actors additionally uh i mean dallas fort worth is not a small market it's you know if depending on how you count it it's sixth or eighth in the nation um, so there's a lot of advertising agencies, and they do a lot of commercials, both national and local, and they, those require actors. And Dallas is um, strangely a, a large hub of video game production. Um, quite a few large companies are based in Dallas or uh, started here and then moved to Austin or elsewhere, but uh, a lot of video game narration happens here. You're You're talking to me today from... Um, your recording studio, uh, did did you start out doing music for for ads and television? Was that what you did first before you did um, vocal, did, before you did voiceover recording, or was it always both? I've worked and had this studio since I bought the property in 2004. Um, largely, it was a place for me to uh, do... Uh, to record and produce bands, 
Um, that's what I've always wanted to do, but was never able to um, because there's no money in it. Um, and um, so I had the day job, as, as m most people do. Um, about three years ago, um, uh, decided to try and make a real go at it um, and, and not just do music and, and bands, um, because that's impossible. Um, but I had along the way done a lot of music for radio, sound for radio, uh, you know, editing post, uh, for video and films, um, all sorts of things. And I had this infrastructure and a will to do something. So I tried to make it work. Um, and you know, that evol evolved into a, a, a company that, that's, uh, does audiobooks and, uh, radio voiceover, uh, and eventually, uh, thankfully podcasts. Um, we're glad you're here. Which I had, to, yeah. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm pleased to be here. Uh, and I had always wanted to to do a, a podcast. I don't think I'd ever really um, aspired to a fictional audio drama, but that's what happened. And um, and it was a great process. Uh, I've known Rob McCullum for a long time. Uh, we actually, I used to play live guitar and 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 bass in his improv comedy troupe back in the late 90s fabulous well uh, do, what so was that's the name of that improv comedy troupe uh neapolitan syndicate of course yeah <laughs> um I, I think neapolitan was misspelled too so whether that was on purpose or they just couldn't afford to redo it i don't know um that's beautiful that's such, that a, that's a, such an improv troupe name uh-huh yeah um yeah it was great fun and so actually you know the, the our, my relationship with rob uh that eventually blossomed into this this project started when they took a, a suggestion from the audience and said okay seven days later um come back and we'll have uh, a five minute short film about that suggestion so i scored all of those and they're they were um fun and horrible as you might expect um, and, but that led into more and more, uh, composing jobs and that led into more and more radio voiceovers and that led into more and more and more and more. Um, and so it was a slow accumulation of, of, uh, expertise and connections. And, um, here we are. How did you meet Michael Federico? Rob introduced us, uh, when we were, when we were talking through terms, he said, all right, I, I want a partner and I want it to be Michael. And I was like, I don't know Michael. I was like, well, uh, here he is. <laughs> Literally, we turned around. He, we were at the same, the same bar. Um, so after a, a quick verbal uh, non-disclosure agreement, it's like, uh, I told Michael the entire plot and he's like, I'm in. It was, it was easy for him to, to decide. And so we just sat down and, and talked through it and, and then more more talking and more talking, and pretty soon we had the season arc. Um, I don't think anything major from our first sets of conversations was excluded. Certainly changed, but uh, everything was everything was encapsulated and, and uh, recorded in in our outline uh, very very fast. And is Federico also? Uh, is he a, a Dallas native? No, he's from Philly. 
so so Daniel Schwartz, who is also a Philadelphia Eagles fan uh, and from Philly, uh, he was he was you know clearly an homage to the the actor playing him. Uh, he moved down to Dallas years and years ago, and I can't remember why. He actually is uh, is a um, some sort of professor at SMU teaching drama or, or, or literature, um, and um, and a playwright, and has 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 you know his own thing going. But uh, certainly, last couple of months have we've kept him busy with terms. I ask because I'm I'm guessing here. This is a total whiff in the dark. Uh, I I was wondering if someone slipped a Molly Ivins reference into Senator Schiller's uh, Senate floor speech um, during. During the debate over uh, Anna Shaw, an episode. Okay, um, with apologies to the horse. Yeah, with apologies to the horse. Uh, you know, saying uh, some folks have said I don't have the sense God gave a horse, which is something I definitely remember Molly Ivan saying about President George W. Bush and ducks. <laughs> um, you know, I'll have to ask him. Uh, you know, uh, the where inspiration for these things come from exactly I don't know, but that that sort of. You know, I don't even know who wrote that portion um, because it's one of the later episodes in which we had to kind of tag team. Sure. So uh, I'll have to I'll have to ask. So what's that writing process look like? I mean, it sounds like a lot of this was planned a long time ago, but the the chaos of current events led to a lot of things being rewritten on the fly. What is what is your writing and editing process look like? Um. So. For the most part, uh, Rob and, and, and Mike would, would trade off episodes just, just for work, workload. Um, but and so we, we, we get a draft of, of an episode. Let's just say uh, it doesn't even matter. You know, we're mid-season, so we're, we're working pretty fast. And we have an idea based on our outline where things are going. And either the first draft will... We have several problems with first drafts. One, they're not long enough, which has been a constant criticism of, of, of terms, and, and I recognize that. But it, if, we let, if we let first draft stand, it would have been, you know, eight minutes episodes instead of 12 or 16. So um, we, our first drafts would accomplish what they need to do in the plot outline, and, and then we're stuck with trying to figure out how to how to flesh it out uh, for length, that would often lead us to uh, increase plot questioning and it, just an all-around good uh, exercise in, in trying to make sure that we're, we're putting together good drama. Uh, so, you know, the, the first drafts just get thrown out. Um, well, that's not true. They, they get augmented and, and amended. Um, and it, it's a it's a, a collaborative revisionary process. Uh, someone will will say, "Okay, hey, um, you know, episode six is up. Let me know your thoughts. I have problems with this, or uh, or I'm I like help here. I really love the way this turned out." And so uh, the other two parties will will read and comment. And um, sometimes we would get hairy enough that we'd have to have an actual meeting and a table read. Um, those those instances, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, have really been helpful in in putting together better scripts. Um, I've never been excellent at reading scripts, uh, especially in the beginning, to really get a flavor for for what the true performance and drama is. 
Um, and so it's been very, very helpful to, to just sit down and, and have a table read. And it's with the writers, it's not with the actors. Um, and we just keep bouncing it and bouncing it and bouncing it. It's been one of the most uh, rewarding collaborative experiences I can remember. Um, I don't think I've been uh, defensive, hurt, or angry in, in any of this process with, with Rob or Mike at all. Have you, Rob, and Mike started to develop a weird private language around story mechanics? I don't know that this always happens in every writer's room, but some people have their own special jargon that they've developed. I'm going to say no, um, but I, I might be ignorant of the jargon that is being developed on the fly because I, you know, I'm not a playwright or, and, and I haven't been in theater as long as, as those two have. So whatever I, I <laughs> comes across the bow as, as what I think is a you know, is ordinary theater jargon uh, might completely be made up uh, or, or some sort of, you know, shibboleth for them. But no, um, we, we try to talk plainly and uh, uh, our concern is for, is, is for the story and for the audience. Um, if there is jargon, uh, it's, it's there as a tool. Who do you lean on for craft, for story mechanics? If the three of you are stuck on something and you want to I don't know, you, you want to address an issue of, like, plot architecture. Is there anything that you, outside the three of you, that you go to access and say, okay, well, this, you know, this structure of poetics or something from Aristotle says we should do X? You know, I, I thought that we would probably be doing that a lot more than, uh, than we did. Um, Again, my deficiencies in uh, or lack of expertise in the theater world means that I probably rely on those things more. They're not innate and they're not practiced. So, you know, I, I went and, and, um, and thought about, you know, the, the hero's arc, Joseph Campbell, or, and, and I, at the beginning of this, and, and you know, I downloaded the master class from uh, Aaron Sorkin, you know, and... Uh, um, Honestly, uh, I didn't have enough time to be a student um, because we were too busy doing. The, 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 real, the real tool was pacing. And, and just, you know, someone would say an idea and you either say, man, I don't know, or God, that's brilliant. And you just say, man, I don't know enough until someone in the room says, that's brilliant. Um, whether it is or not, you know, that's up to, to the listeners to decide, but um, it certainly helped us improve what we had. You mentioning Aaron Sorkin brings up another question for me. What, what kind of political fiction do you like? Well, you know, there, let's, let's just run the, the, the names here. I mean, I, uh, I, I don't think we could get away with, without mentioning House of Cards. It's the clearest parallel. It's a, you know, a dark political thriller of someone who's some ne'er-do-well politician who's trying to get what he wants. Um, I don't think you could look at, uh, not look at West Wing as an inspiration for um, just the idea that you could pull off a political podcast. It's all vocals, you know, it's all dialogue. Um, you need to know how to do patter, and no one really does that better than Sorkin. After that, um, I don't know. I mean, uh, I really had no model in mind uh, directly. Uh, I, I just knew that uh, 
that I wanted it to feel a certain way. Um, and so I, I actually, my wife recently started rewatching episodes of the West Wing and, and we have a, as you might have heard from the, the Blue Apron ads, uh, a, a young daughter. And so we were pretty much passed out after 930. So we might get uh, an episode of the West Wing in. Um, and I'm surprised at how, how fantastically light that show is. Um, you know, so, so when I make comparisons to West Wing, I, one, they're aspirational, just know that. Uh, and two, uh, I don't even know if I should because it, the tone is so different. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad for that because I don't think I, don't think I personally could have succeeded telling this story in, in the same manner as, as, as West Wing tells its. What other, what other styles of... So obviously there's going to be more terms, right? There's going to be a season two. Um, right? He says anxiously. Sitting on the edge of his stool. <laughs> right. uh, yeah, no, no, we have we have every hope of, um, of a season two. What other yeah. what other kinds of audio drama are you interested in producing? So we've we've this is our first and my first, and so it sets kind of a tone and a brand. I know I know what we're, com- we're comfortable of, you know, with and what we're capable of. Um, I I have ideas for not only a second season of Terms. Um, I'm I'm just next week, going to start pre-production on, on I think, what will be my very next podcast. Uh, it is also a, uh, a, a fictional audio drama, although more of a historical fictional audio drama. Um, so I am not interested in um, contributing to the vast body of, of, of mystery, paranormal, paranormal sci-fi. Um, while I enjoy it, um, uh, there's too much available and too many other people who, who um, probably care more deeply about it than, than I do um, to do it well. So I think, I think I'll continue on finding um, small, tightly coiled stories that, that, can, be, that can be told well um, in, in, in the darker corners of, of, of the audio drama universe. Um, I like that stuff. And, um, and I think we've found a production style that works, although I'm intensely interested in, in, in trying out a more live-acted version for the next podcast. Um, I'm very interested in, in the soundscapes, the different soundscapes that different podcasts When you say live-action, live-acted, what um, do you mean? Do you mean, like, on-location recording? Well, yeah, on-location and... Um, you know the 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 truth about terms is it's ex- exceptionally controlled. Um, I'm I'm able to to cut up syllables out of performances because uh, we record it in a in a a really dead controlled environment, and that has its 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 pros and cons. Uh, the pros obviously are the amount of control, but the cons are um, I have to construct the entire audio environment around it. And um, and it becomes a bit sparse. Uh, I mean, the if you listen to Homecoming, for instance, which is mostly you know location recording, and done very well with with a with a a, a great cast and a large budget. So I, I listen to that uh, in particular, and there's just night and day production values differences, not in terms of quality, but 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 choices. Um, Homecoming is is all mono. 
has a large amount of, of ambient noise. It doesn't really get in the way of dialogue, but there's not a lot of constructed... I mean, I'm sure it's layered like crazy, but but it's not it's not uh, the clean, hollow feel that that you might get from from terms. It's it's got some some fuzz around the edges. I'll, I'll tell you one thing that I'm I'm excited about uh, a location is, uh, but we can achieve it in studio. Uh, the trick with doing in studio recordings is to remind the actors that they're acting. Um, many. Many of these actors are, are accomplished narrators. They come in and do other things besides stage or film acting. Um, and they're ac- and as soon as the headphones go on and the mic's placed, they can get into a narrator mode. You know, they're reading scripts just like they do in the VO booth when reading an ad. Um, they've got headphones on, which kind of puts their voice piped into their ears. You know, that the, the real world isn't isn't reflected properly. You know, they're not, they're, even though they might be playing across or against another actor uh, who's in the room with them, they're more concerned with, with the headphones. You know, that their, their counterpart is, and they are in their ears. Um, and there's this microphone in front of them that they have to be cognizant of for placement. And the, universally, the best takes we've ever gotten from, from difficult scenes has, has been when we reminded that the actors are actors and they're not narrators and they need to uh, take off the headphones and um, even if they haven't memorized their script, it doesn't matter, look at the person they're talking to, move around um, and, and, and re- regain their humanity, um, you know, regain the physicality of, of, of their body and, and breathing and... and, and um, every time we've we've gotten stuck, I've asked from the other room that, that the actor um, be more physical. Okay, you know, like uh, just the one of the last recordings of, of of episode thirteen, we just weren't getting to the right place, and and so I asked I asked the actor to 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 put his hand over his face, which is ridiculous in a in a you wouldn't ever do that in a in a ad read because it's clearly screwing up the the audio to the mic but but it put it's just altered the physicality of the scene and and put you know the emotion back into it uh, which is what i'm i'm always trying to to capture interesting and so getting getting someone out into the field with no headphones on and maybe somebody following along with a boom microphone to capture the performance would be more naturalistic you feel Oh yeah, yeah, but I think it has the opposite problem, you know. Uh, uh, so, so now I can't because of ambient noises or whatever. I may not not be able to cut in and out as as tightly as I as I want, um, and I'm, I have to rely on whole phrases or, or or whole takes rather than just word by word. Um, whatever, you know, I'm up for the challenge. But I do think that you substitute one problem for another. Are you at liberty to say what the piece of historical fiction that you're looking to make would be about? Um, yeah, so uh, I've been in uh, talks with uh, a playwright here uh, in town, uh, Stephen Walters, and um, he he put together a play uh, called Booth, uh, w- which is um, a meditation on what happened uh, after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. And so we are taking that idea uh, and making hopefully a series uh, called American Assassins. 
And um, we want to investigate over a course of several episodes uh, uh, certain assassinations or attempts in, in American history. And, um, and each one has a, has a theme we'll be exploring. Uh, oddly enough, uh, in, in the, this first episode, which is about the assassination of, of Lincoln, um, Stanton's reckless pursuit of Booth legally um, has some large parallels to Pierce's journeys in terms. Um, so I think I, I immediately gravitated to it. Um, here's a man whose who's, uh, aspirations are probably seated right, but they go wrong. And um, and there's some real and yeah some real consequences for it. So I'm excited about it. Uh, we we are we are in in pre-production. Um, I have no idea what the actual productions or release schedule is going to be, um, but I, I'm excited about it. Uh, talking about t- texture and, and following up on the production, you know that I have no idea how we're going to be able to live act that uh, because I can't have any airplanes or cars or any noise whatsoever uh an anachronistic noise so it might be another in-studio recording just for that or or you know um so Lindsay, to take us out i i just want to ask you just sort of broadly what does public service mean to you what are the reasons you can imagine someone might choose a career in government what a great question and, and one i think i've been dwelling on quite a bit uh you know, uh, as you might have seen, there's been lots of calls to participate more in our political uh, arena. And I've been thinking about it a lot. Uh, my participation, my active participation is, is actually pretty low. Um, so what, is it, what does it mean to be a public servant? All right, so I'm going to tell you a story. Um, I, don't, I don't think uh, I really knew what it meant to care for another person until until my daughter was born. This may be a trope or, or something you've heard quite a bit. But, yeah, um, I, I think there are some people who have, uh, just like many other personality traits, uh, much more or much less empathy for, for their fellow man. And um, I don't, it, and it didn't occur to me what it means to really feel for someone else that, that you don't know until, or for me, until I had my daughter. And, and of course, that happened simultaneously with, with the refugee crisis and those horrible, wrenching pictures of, of Syrian children. And... Um, and I think I, 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 it all of a sudden occurred to me what public service is. It's that feeling. It's acting on that. It's understanding that, um, that negligence or ignorance of, of the conditions of the world is, uh, cannot be abided, and that uh, the similarities <clears throat> that you are forced to, to confront because of your empathy uh, are must be a fact of the universe that, that you, you have to reconcile in your own actions. Um, so being a public servant is, is recognizing um, this, those similarities of humanity, their importance, 
and then crucially acting on it. And, and, and I'll be honest, like I said, uh, I've made a political podcast and I've called a few, you know, representatives, but I haven't done much else. Um, and, and that's something I'm thinking about quite a bit. Yeah. I ask you this not to, not to like shame you and be like, oh, I, no, I don't tell I, me about I, the, I don't feel shamed or, or proud. So I, I, I think sure. it's, it's a contemplation that, that is, uh, certainly, uh, of the moment and, and something that uh, I don't mind telling you that I'm thinking quite a bit about. Uh, if you don't mind elaborating further, what do you what do you intend to do going forward? Um, I don't know. You know, like in, in the middle of our our, our conversation here, uh, uh, you know, we had a, a, a small debate about values, right? And I want to have that debate more often and more broadly. I, I, I think. I think at the core of, of, of this podcast terms and my own political ideology is one of, of, um, of patience and consideration. And while I am not, you know, the, the, the periphery gets the, the benefit of being very loud. I, w- I would love to be a fantastically loud moderate. I, I, I don't even know if that's possible, you know. Because how do you shout down uh, someone by merely requesting that they, they be civil? You know, it's, 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 it's almost a contradiction. Um, but I think I, I believe very strongly in certain aspects of, of our uh, political discourse and what works in discourse. I, uh, you know, I, I have strong feelings that we are human animals with defects and our own introspection is the only way forward. Um, and the requirements of evidence and um, some some method are paramount. And so I'd like to I'd like to have that conversation more, whether it's through a podcast or or my own uh, uh, involvement in in local affairs or who, who knows, you know, if I get enough followers on terms, I'll run for from national office. Seriously, uh, I mean, are you are you interested in running for office? Well, one Lindsey Graham already made it, so. <laughs> I am starting to think that all stories, whether they intend to or not, contain some kernel of moral instruction, that, that we receive stories as having some kind of lesson for behavior, whether it's cautionary or exemplary. First of all, do you agree with that notion? Yeah, I, I do. I, and, and immediately I start thinking about why is that? And I think it, a, a simple answer would be that, that we, are, we are built to be storytelling creatures, and I think we are, um, through the sheer evolutionary weight of it being instructive. Stories are valuable to us because they are literally valuable to us. And I guess I would ask, and I know this is a really reductive way to boil down the podcast, is there... Is there instruction contained within terms? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, especially as, as we finish up the, the end of, of the season. I mean, we, we, and we've seen where Pierce is gone. So, you know, we've said over and over that terms is, is, a, uh, is a show about government and not a show about politics. And, and I think that's, that remains true. Um, and as a show about government, it is a show about process and thinking. 
And um, so when there is a dirty trick or when there is a, a plot device that requires some sort of machinations, even then it is, it is considered within the propriety of, of the system. No one has ever questioned American values on terms. There's no anarchist firebrand. No one, it's, it, right, but, but he has a, his, his mutated version of them. And, and, but yeah, I'll agree. Um, everyone else uh, de facto believes in the fundamental first principles of American governance, that they are right and true, and they should be enhanced and protected. Um, if if I can put that, you know, the the more lesson of terms is um, is to think about that more carefully. Not that they aren't right and sh- it should be enhanced and protected, but that they are values, they are ideas, they are um, immaterial concepts that you can't just point to and say free speech or Second Amendment and have that mean something. Those are, those are talismans. Those are em- emblems of, of abstract ideals of, of honestly, you know, 300-year-old c- concepts of humanity. And um, we have to understand that, that concepts of humanity need uh, exploration and, and not just pointing to. Lindsey Graham, thank you so much for coming on Radio Drama Revival. This was an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Lindsay. If you liked our chat and you want to hear more of Terms, check them out at termspodcast.com. I'm of two minds on Nazi punching. My gut is that I'm for it. Nazis don't want me in America. I'm Jewish. It's not fair that I get the last word here because it's my show, but I've been mulling over what Lindsay and I talked about for a while now. I don't know that there's an easy answer to this question, but Nazis use the tools of democratic discourse to destroy democratic discourse, pushing the Overton window of what is acceptable so far that it begets atrocity. What I'll say is this. Call out bigotry when you see it, and if you see it in yourself, acknowledge it and work on it. And if you're a Nazi, like, okay, first of all, what the hell, dude? How did you make it this far into the episode? Do you know what this show is, is about? Get over to lifeafterhate.org and work on yourself. You do that, there doesn't need to be any punching. Hey, thank you for listening to Radio Drama Revival, and don't forget to rate and review this podcast in iTunes. I read every review. I will read one now. This one's from iTunes user Boojum. Quote, I am a lover of short fiction and audio drama. I was expecting good things, considering the team that produces, and I was not disappointed. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Boojum. We have a Wondery survey for you to take. That's at wondery.com survey. It helps us learn more about our audience and enables the show to grow. Also, don't forget, albasalix.com season two. Head on over there and support your local podcast. And now, credits. Our theme music is Danger Did You Do by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud or Thumping Mightily in the Clubs of Oakland, California. Our producers are Matthew Boudreaux and Eli McElveen. Matt was once the nation's cutest mayor. He may still be, but Santa Claus, Colorado has since burned to the ground. 
Eli McElveen is the most right honorable chair of the East Riding of the Third Council of... Who am I kidding? I have no idea how Canada works. Our researchers are Monique Boudreau and Heather Cohen. Monique chairs a mysterious super PAC that won't divulge its donors, or even what it intends to do with its war chest. Who knows what could be in store for Squirrel Pack? Heather grows strong by chewing the bones of bureaucracies. She is, however, unaffiliated with the mysterious destruction by fire of Santa Claus, Colorado. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhouch, the man who pulls the strings, the man inside the Faraday cage, the man who calls the shots. When the nation has need of him, he goes to work. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome.